and welcome to They Just Get It. My name is Tyler Chisholm, and I'm excited, as I always am, to be here with my guest this morning, a longtime friend. Actually, I was thinking about it before you came into the show. I think it's been 18 years. At least. Yes, I've been in Calgary since 2000, and I met you not long after being here. I'm sitting here with Alice Wheaton. Good morning, Alice. Good morning, Tyler. How are you on this uh, beautiful, well, it's kind of a nice day, but it's probably going to rain later. Well, it's a wonderful day. Um, as my mom and dad used to say, it's a great day if you're not six feet under. If you're on the right side of the grass? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I have known Alice for years, and I even forget how we met, but I'm, Alice is, um, how would I explain you? Uh, to I'll let you do it, obviously, but sales trainer extraordinaire. Um, Core Growth Foundation is your company, which you've run for, I think, almost 30 years. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into a little bit of a background, but before we dive too into the story behind the Alice, what, uh, tell us a little bit about, what, about just who you are and kind of what you do today. Like, what's day-to-day life for you? Uh, Perfect. Well, I work with my clients, and not always, but typically they're engineering firms or technical experts. Okay, like more professional services, but more highly technical. Professional services, uh, folks that are hmm, really smart. Okay. Who don't want any smoke blown up their pant leg. (laughs) That's fair. And they love a good system. Okay. So most people don't... Structural, analytical... Structural, analytical. Analytical drivers are my people. Okay, Okay. that's your tribe. And engineers create all of the wealth in the world. Now, unfortunately, they don't get to keep it. No, yeah. The, 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 the technician or the, the, the skilled individual, usually someone else is orchestrating that around right. them. But, you know, when you got up this morning, you had a shower, there was a water wastewater engineer. You brushed your teeth, that was a chemical engineer. You turned off the bathroom light, that was an electrical engineer. engineer. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you follow me, right? And then yes. you, if you took a vitamin, probably a medical researcher type engineer was involved. Oh, and has that always been, uh, you know, 29 years you've been running your, and, mm-hmm. and just to be clear, like you take those individuals and you help them with articulating and essentially selling what they do? Yes. Okay. Because engineering firms who can't sell have to wait and pick what comes. Oh, interesting. Okay. Right. They send, they respond to RFQs or proposals or something like that. But those who are proactive end up driving a lot of business on their own. And they're the ones these days with, with, um, backlog and in an engineering firm if you don't have backlog then what's on the books right nobody sleeps that night yes because at the end of the day it, it turns into an eat what you kill kind of situation yes exactly quick. so can you share some examples of do you work with your clients here in town are they north american wide like what's what's uh, what's your breadth that way well they're north american wide okay uh, or they're international you know morrison hirschville is an engineer in Tor- an engineering firm in toronto they're all over the world yes um and when I started working with them about five, six years ago, they had, I don't know, 400 people. Now they're, they can't even keep count themselves. Okay. So, so fast. <laughs> Depends on the day. Mm-hmm. But what we did was help them create a sales culture or business development culture so that, um, you know, the CEOs and the leads, the division leads could predict uh, what their cash flow would be six months from now. Versus the hope, hope strategy. Yes. Yeah. Do you find that that's challenging and not to dive too far into it, but creating a sale? I know in our world, sometimes we work with a lot of technically oriented and they do not have a marketing culture or a brand culture or like it's fluff and it's kind of almost feels wasteful to them. Do you find a sales culture is a big challenge and they're lacking in a lot of those organizations? Yes. And one of the difficulties most people have is that when they use the term, the all encompassed term of business development, right. they actually don't know what that means. It's like aloha. Or meow. Yeah, right. <laughs> it can mean anything. We can apply it to multiple, yeah. yeah. Okay. But so I, my brain works, it's like, well, I have to define that for them. So my definition of business development is 
sales plus marketing plus customer service. The full breath, the full, the, the true full experience of right. being working with that brand. Mm -hmm. Right. And so sales, so lots of people will, will have a process for marketing because it's softer and easier. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I don't disagree. There's no, no bad feels with marketing. But if we someone, are in the feel good business over here, right? we are for sure. Yes, absolutely. But when someone needs to now step up to the plate and make outreach calls, and there's only three types of business that any company can earn, only three. Okay. And the process for each one is different. Okay. And so getting new business is the most difficult. And so engineers, I have a you know, concrete, specific, step-by-step -step process that works almost every time. Okay. Which you're speaking their love language for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah 100%. So, <laughs> yes. And so what happens is that then they get excited and then they realize that they're not putting their life on the line. They're not going to die. <laughs> It's just marketing. No, it's just sales. No one's going to die. No one's going to die. <laughs> Which ties back to I know your history of working in an emerge as an emergener. So we'll circle right? back to that in a second. No <laughs> yeah. one's going to die. Um, so you said the three types of business. So one is new business. Well, new business from new clients. Okay, net new. I call that strangers. Okay. New business from existing clients. I call those keepers. Okay. And new business from past clients. I call those deserters. Yes. But okay. in reality, they're been deserted. Oh, interesting. But yes. I think it's so easy just in life in general to, like, again, do, that flips it to now I own that versus blaming them. Well, when I say to a client, yeah. what percentage of your clients give you 90 days notice that they're giving their next project to your competition? Their eyes get wide and their heart starts to beat and they say, zero. And it's like, well, do you want to stop that? Well, yes. <laughs> yes. But I don't know how. <laughs> so, oh, so interesting. So again, I think you and I have talked about this before. Like it, Again, it's it, there's processes, but it's also so much the psychology of what you bring to it and your belief structures around things. Yes, but if you've got a good system, your belief, your belief system and your attitude can catch up. Okay. And so lots of times working with technical experts, their belief system is not there in the beginning because... Well, they made up a story. And typically... <laughs> As we do. <laughs> yes. And, and human beings believe their stories. We, well, yes. Sometimes sometimes to, uh, to our own demise. Often to our own demise. Often to our own demise. So when I'm working with an engineer or technic or anyone, even if it's a roofing salesperson or whatever, right. then they tell me a story and I say, well, let's dissect that story and find out if there's five pieces or seven pieces to the story and which piece is real. Oftentimes we find that there's no peace that's It's real. all hallucinations. <laughs> it's a term I heard years ago. It's like, you know, majority of the things we think, it's just we're hallucinating. And you say that, people are like, no, I'm not hallucinating. It's, it's real. And you're like, well, okay, well, let's, let's, I'm curious. Tell me more. And you start unpacking it and you realize that most of it is hallucinations. Exactly. You make uh, and, up a story that served you in one particular moment in time. And then that moment has transported and then leveraged for the rest of your life. I think that's so interesting. I made the, the joke I used to make. So, you know, when's the last time you took a you, you took advice from a six year old? Yeah. Every day, yeah. the six year old you came up with something that that day on the playground was what you needed to survive, and then you've been trading on it for the next forty years. Exactly. <laughs> and I wonder if it serves me the same way as it did that day. And that's yeah. funny, but but taking the moment to look at it that way, it's oftentimes it takes a lot of ownership. Right. And in a business, most of the problems can be solved not by more technical skills. You can go and get those, and most people are capable. It's what you're owning, and then what you're getting out of your own. Way doing. You know, um, I've just, <laughs> that's a, I'm that's just, a fun way to look at I'm it. I'm just doing some work with uh, with uh, a company that's helping me digitize and okay. take my 
I have everything in a system, but they're helping me digitize it. And they weren't getting back to me. And, and I woke up two days ago and I was grumbling inside myself. And I went, oh, I'm making up shit and believing it. <laughs> Good for you for catching yourself in that cycle, though, because that's the hard part, is being yeah. the observer of the, of, the, of the crazy person, I say, quote, unquote. Yeah. And I said, okay, so now if I'm making up stuff and believing it, I'm putting myself as a victim. So stop that, Alice. Get a grip. <laughs> the Alice I know is definitely not a victim. So a little bit, um, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in northern Newfoundland. Northern Newfoundland. It's good when you kind of, you can't just say Newfoundland. You have to be very specific. No, my son, it was way up there, lah. I still, I've, I've been chatting with you for a while. And as soon as you were in this morning, a couple of words, you said I heard the accent right away, which I love. It always makes me smile. Um, how, and you, how long did you, did you stay there? Did you grow, like, grow up there? Quote, I grew unquote? up there. I was born there, and my parents grew up there. And I was eight years old before I saw my first stranger. Wow. I, everybody know, knows everybody. Yeah, I've heard that. Like, leave your doors unlocked because someone might need yeah. to come in. And, every, you know, if anyone's not from there, they're from away. And I've heard all kinds of great yeah. lingo that goes with that culture. But here's the deal. I was talking about it the other day to someone. I never heard a racist statement in my life. Interesting. Growing up. Well, in Northern hmm. Newfoundland, the doctors right. and you know, ministers and stuff like that were educated and they're often, they might be from Africa. Different. That's and, interesting. And so those were the uh-huh. elevated people around us. There was no, like they were higher status. Of course, because they, yeah, highly skilled, they professional. They skilled, you and you're sick, went to the doctor. And, who, and whoever's the, the doctor, the medical providers in small towns, they're like almost godlike status. Godlike status. Yeah, absolutely. So. And they were all from different ethnic backgrounds. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Because immediately you think small town, I, I grew up in a small town in southern Quebec, that was not quite that way. It was a, like, there was some diversity, but you it was a little bit. You might have had a road bit, in and out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a little bit of a, there was, uh, there was a little bit of racism and a little, it was, I'm not going to call it racism, it's just there was a limited perspective on the world. Yeah. <laughs> Which resulted in then beliefs that maybe weren't true or based on nothing, based on stories. Oh, interesting. So you grew up in an environment that you, like, again, but highly personal. Everybody knows everybody in an environment like that. Completely uneducated. Yes. But highly personal. And the worst thing and I heard. And highly caring and supportive of each yes, other. Yes. The worst thing I ever heard my mother ba- say about someone was, oh, don't criticize them, my dear, because they was drug up. They wouldn't brought up. They was drug up. <laughs> they can't help themselves. <laughs> But give them space, give them forgiveness, which is totally different than just criticizing. <laughs> oh, that's super funny, thinking back to where we grew up. Um, and I know your first, because I know a little bit of your story, but uh, you didn't start as a professional sales person. No, indeed. I was a nurse, because in my little town, that was the to elevator. be a nurse or a teacher was the ultimate. Ah, which makes total sense, thinking about the environment you grew yeah. up in. And Holland, so did you, were you, where did, did you have to go away to school, obviously? Yes, I had to go away to St. John's, but okay. in grade nine, I won a scholarship. Oh, of, co- of course you did. <laughs> and I brought it home, and all the way home on the school bus, I was planning all the clothes I was going to buy, being, I think I was 15 at the time. <laughs> I showed it to my mom, and she snatched it from me, and she says, you'll never see this again until you go to, until you go to the university. So oh, nice. Mailed, I, like, I like her style right away. <laughs> she mailed it to the Bank of Nova Scotia in Gander. And sure enough, and I think that was more money than my mate, dad made that year. Any other mother in that town would have spent it on household. Right. But she mailed it to the Bank of Nova Scotia. Uh, the mentors and the, and the women who set examples, or the people that set examples in our life. Yeah. That's powerful. So went off to medical school, went off to medical school and that was the path. I'm going to be a nurse. This is going to be the end all and be all. And yep. how long did you work in that, in that profession? I worked in that profession probably seven or eight years. And in the Maritimes? Like in, on the- no, I moved to Toronto, then Vancouver. And oh, then I went, right on. Okay. That's, a big, that's a big move from northern Newfoundland. 
Yeah, I couldn't get far enough away. <laughs> yes, then, having grown up in a small town, I know exactly. No need to explain. Yeah, and then great place I, to be from. <laughs> then I went to uh, university and did my undergrad at BSCN. Graduated with honors, and I had my first book published then. How many? I know you've got how many books do you have published? I think it's six. Congratulations! Thank and you. and I heard, and I think I read on your on your website, translated into over twelve languages. Yeah, more. Yeah. 16, actually. 16. I, I th- counting. Yeah, well, come on. When you've got X <laughs> amount of books, I would be counting for sure. We're keeping score and we're sharing it with people. That's fantastic. What was your first book? My first book, funny enough, was called The First Three Days After Your Open Heart Surgery. Okay. Because um, there were no teaching manuals. and we had- certainly no one could, You couldn't Google it. No. You couldn't go on YouTube. <laughs> and, and so uh, we had a, a baby that had open heart surgery and uh, she had an arrest that night and a patient who just had a quadruple bypass saw us working on the baby and thought we were killing it because he was five hours post-op. Right. And so he'd cry. You're in a very raw place. Raw <laughs> place. He climbed out of bed, blood tubes going everywhere. And I thought to myself, wow, wouldn't it be great? These patients should have a teaching manual, shouldn't they? And I went looking what, what, for what, one what? and there was none. It's amazing what shows up when there's this, like, now it seems so obvious. Oh, we need oh, to educate no. and we're all empowered and, you know, the age of the yeah, consumer yeah. now versus then it was like, no, no, you just be over there and we'll tell you what we need to tell you yeah. when we tell it to you. Mm. Interesting. What year was that? That was in 1978. Ah, interesting yeah. times. Different worlds back Different then. Different world. And that's, you were in Vancouver. I was in Vancouver. I worked at the, card, um, the cardiac surgery unit, yeah. Oh, so you were you were as a nurse you were you were in it too in terms of yeah. I know there's different types of nurses and different and there's the kind that are in, yeah. the, in the trauma and once so. you've been in the high stakes trauma emerged critical care that's pretty difficult to go back to the boring world and because yes. I, I didn't really like patients if they weren't unconscious anyway so. <laughs> I do always love your honesty <laughs> how many years uh, in nursing uh, six. Seven, something like that. Okay, okay. So long enough, and you're kind of long in enough. Your early twenties, sorting yourself out. And so, was there a big turning moment? Was there because that sounds like a path? Like that's a path you can kind of get almost handcuffed into for the long haul if you're not careful. The big turning moment for me is that there was a young woman my age at the time, and she actually looked a little bit like me. Okay. And she was brain dead, and her parents were so desperate to have her organs transplanted because. They wanted to know that parts of their daughter were alive. Okay. And it was my job that day to take her to the various x-rays, MRIs, and so on to, not MRIs, there were no MRIs back then, but the x-rays and tests and so on, to see what, you know, organs were viable. And there were none. And although she'd passed, I remember pushing her, uh, stretch her back to her place in the intensive care unit. And I was crying. I'd never cried in my life before. Over a patient. There was no time. Like a patient died, take care of it. Right. Another it's a, it's one's coming high, in the it's door. A, it's a high intensity. It's, yeah, it's a high impact environment. And I remember standing there crying and realized I did not want to be doing this anymore. I'd seen enough people. And like I remember admitting a patient and his leg falling off onto the floor because he'd been in a motorcycle accident. Mm-hmm. And me picking up this leg and wandering around, where do I? What, what do you want the lake? Yeah. <laughs> and they weren't transplanting them. <laughs> There's no then. section preordained for like random legs. Yeah. Random limbs. So I was like, I'm done. And then I was in Toronto working and emerged there and met the woman who changed my life forever. Oh, interesting. And tell me, tell me about the use. You immediately glowed when you said that. <laughs> who was the lady that changed your life forever? Her name was Vel McElroy. 
and uh, she'd been in a small accident. There was a big accident on the QEW, and she was one who weren't, was not injured. She was beautiful. Her purse and shoes matched, and she wore a beautiful dress. And I said to her, where were you going? And she said, I was going to the Toronto Yacht Club to take my sales team to a cocktail party. Now, being from Newfoundland, I'd never heard such pretty words all in a row. <laughs> a strung together in a sense. <laughs> I might have heard, my son, we're going fishing this afternoon, la. But, <laughs> but not the yacht Equally club. a good time. Equally a good time. <laughs> Equally a good time, but not a yacht club where you stood around and looked good and talked nice. Just, yeah, yeah, literally. Okay. And I said, oh my God, I'd love to have the opportunity to do that before I doze. <laughs> and did you still have a pretty, did you have the full accent at oh, that I did. time? I am my accent. That's awesome. Because, of course, I'm picturing you now talking like the way you are now. But no, you were the mid to late 20s girl, fresh yeah. off the fresh off fresh the rock. Fresh off the rock. Yeah. Fresh off the rock. Yeah, don't Sorry, I'll get, yeah, <laughs> get it right. So she said, well, I said, where, where do you work? She said, I work at Yellow Pages. I'm a sales manager there. So why don't you go to Xerox, pretend you know my husband, Neil McElroy. He's a general manager. They'll give you an interview, but just out of respect because they're not hiring women yet. Oh, interesting. So oh, I love this part of the story. <laughs> off I went to 101 Bloor Street. Ron Rubin was the realtor, uh, was the human resources guy. And I filled out my app and I got a call back. But interesting, after I filled out the apps, the application, mm-hmm. I went next door. There was a businesswoman's clothing store there. And I bought a full outfit of clothes for sales for Xerox. I came home. Got another first step, look the part. Mm. First step, look the part. Came home, got a, got a uh, another interview, and then I bought some dips, um, tapes by J. Douglas Edwards. Okay, he was a sales trainer way back then. Yep, and I memorized every single word on those tapes. I still have them. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And this is where late late seventies. This was late seventies. Okay. And late 70s, they're not hiring women for sales roles. They weren't hiring. They were in the states, and that's what so they're hiring in the states. Uh, okay, but so the wave, so it's come. The change is coming, but right. wow, I, you can't get this job because you're not a man. Because you're not a man. So I got. So <laughs> it I seems so crazy to me. So I went back to interview after interview after interview, and Bill Irwin, uh, the guy I just called uh, a week ago. Yeah, the story you told, which we'll loop back to that. That's we'll a good story. I want to bring that in. So Bill Irwin. Um, so I went. He said, "Well." <laughs> All your psychological tests show that you'd be really great either as an engineer or a salesperson, and that seems to be conflicting. But I'd really like some of your approach, so I'm going to have to talk to your husband to see if it would be okay by him if you had the job. Wow. I think I've saw watching Mad Men and some of the shows where it's like a couple generations before that. Yeah. You see that I have must ask your wife's permission, your husband's permission. <laughs> so I gave him and, my address. It was and a, you were and you weren't married at this time. I was you? married. Like you were. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. Okay. Yeah, that was my first husband, and okay. he's really a good friend still. Okay, awesome. Um, so <laughs> clearly, he gave you permission. So I'm just laughing to know you. Well, I think he probably laughed and says. I don't think anyone can stop Alice, yeah, but did, anyway. Clearly, you didn't grasp who she is as a person, but that's awesome. Okay. It's good. It sets the context of what era we lived in at that, that time. the context. So, <laughs> it came on a... Blows me away. I love it. It came on a Wednesday, and then he said, I will call you by Friday. Well, Friday came and went, no news from him, no call from him. So, he, uh, so there was a transit strike called for the Monday morning. Uh, and so... I got up Monday morning at 4 a.m. dressed in my suit that I Your power bought. outfit. Yeah, yep. absolutely. An empty briefcase. And I just went in and sat at one of the salesman's desks. 
the salesman kept coming and saying, can I up you? And I said, no, I'm waiting for Mr. Irwin. So he showed like, up. This is like from a movie. It's so good. It's such a good story. So he showed up and he says, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I missed your call. No news is good news. If you show me how to pack my briefcase, I'll go to work for you today. He said, come into my office. I went in, and before he could even say anything, I said, look, Mr. Irwin, wouldn't you agree that Ben Franklin is one of the world's wisest men? Now, this is one of the objections I was listening to from J. Douglas Edwards. Yep. He said, I agree. I said, well, what he would do when he was faced with a decision like you're faced with today, he'd take a piece of paper, he'd draw a line down the middle, and he'd write all of the reasons to hire me and all of the reasons not to hire me. If we do this one thing, I promise never to ask you for the job again. He agreed. So I began to list all the reasons why to hire me. And I said, you know, I'm really smart, and I know I'm smart because I grad just graduated from university with a very high GPA, like 3.96. I did graduate with honors. Okay, okay that's good. Uh, I'm really great with change. I'm from Newfoundland, and now I'm here. Look, I'm coping just fine. And I went on and on and on and listed them. And then when it came time to list the reasons not to hire me, I did what the tape suggested. I put my pen down, folded my hands, looked at him, and smiled. And just and let it sit. And let it sit. Oh, the uncomfortable silence. He looked at me, and he started to laugh. And he said, I took my salesman to hear J. Douglas Edwards speak a month ago. <laughs> I bought them all the tapes that you've been listening to, and I've been begging them to role play this the Ben Franklin clothes, but they never did. So of course you're hired. That is that's an amazing story. I love it. Well, what it set out for me was that on in so order many to be, levels, I don't even know where to start and stop with that story. <laughs> but you know, it occurred to me that you have to be willing to do what other people don't want to do. Right. At the risk of being uncomfortable, at the, the risk, risk of, of being uncomfortable, going outside your boundaries. That not inside my stomach, my question to myself always, will I die if I make this co-call and they say no? Like I'm going to Winnipeg. I just helped a client in Winnipeg, amazing client. He's grown so much since we worked together. I've just helped him write a book. And he said to me when I suggested, he says, I can't write. I said, no, you know, I'll interview you and we'll record it and we'll transcribe it. And it's a process. Yeah. I couldn't stop him. It's a 60,000-word book. Oh, wow, that is impressive. That's a lot of words. But their 65th anniversary is coming up. And so I said to him, and he said, two days ago, of course you're coming. I said, yes, but in the meantime, can you give me half a dozen referrals? Because when I'm there, I'll spend two, three days extra, and I'll make some cold calls. Right. And he said, sure. Now, I'm not taking that as 100%, because people make promises and forget, and he's busy with the... Mm -hmm. So I've now downloaded uh, an Excel sheet of all the engineering technical firms in Winnipeg. So I'm not going to sit and wait for his referrals. And then be the victim if it doesn't happen. And be the victim if it doesn't happen. Yeah. So it's just so I've, easy to do. Well, it's not my fault. They didn't send me the leads. Yeah. What do you want me to do? So now I get to languish in Winnipeg. Not, nothing wrong with Winnipeg. I've been there 150 times, I'm sure. Well, especially this time of year. It's better. You're going into the good time to go to Winnipeg. Like somewhere. Is there a time where between winter and mosquito season? Because I heard there's really two seasons in Winnipeg. <laughs> so that's, that's... And so what I do is when I went into Xerox, then I broke all the records. And the reason is, is because of the, being a critical care nurse. Okay. Because you just don't walk up to somebody on the bed and say, oh, I think I'll try this today. You just don't do that. So it's the same thing. You have a system, a process. And so 
when I decided to start my own business, I called probably 30 universities mm-hmm. in North, North America to see if they had the competency profile for what made a brilliant salesperson. None. Marketing, yes. Nothing for salespeople. So I developed it. I did focus group after focus group after focus group. And I know the absolute 10 skills you need to be an elite performer and the 40 skills to support that. And you did, this is all, because obviously you're getting your training, you're in the trenches, you're living and breathing this. And yeah. it really inspired you yeah. at that point. How long were you at Xerox for? I was at Xerox for six years or so. Okay. Yeah. And broke all their records. Please rhyme them off because they're they're my impressive. They're business, impressive. My first year of business, I was in sales. I was on 196 percent of plan, and the next year I was 332. And take, you were the first female salesperson for Xerox in Canada. Yeah. And then the then were you also number one salesperson just overall taking gender out of the equation? I, I don't know. Stop with the gender I, I know, thing. I know. I just measured myself based on the on, on your plan and on your that my, on that uh, office, but yeah. So, Which I imagine Toronto at that time, that was probably a pinnacle office yeah. for, for the Canadian market for Xerox. And, you know, I have to say, I did not have one Me Too experience. I, I didn't. Well, you said, you shared the story with me earlier about calling up your manager. Sorry, what was the name of your manager there? Bill Irwin. Bill Irwin and saying thank you for, you know. Protecting me during that time because I would be at meetings and conferences with other guys and me. Right. And so. <laughs> and never had, and never had, and never had those had. experience to look back. The worst thing that ever happened to me is that I would come in on Friday nights and prepare my paperwork because depending on the Xerox machine you had installed required different toner. Okay, yep. So I'd know what I was going to close that week and I'd have my documents all presented because I never believed in filling in forms in front of a customer. And then what would happen is the, I found out the guys were stealing them. So what I did is then Stealing I, the toner? No, no, stealing the papers oh. to make it easy for them. Oh, interesting. So what I did is I filled out a whole bunch of papers wrong. <laughs> I think resourceful is the word. I keep this reeling around in my mind for you when it's any situation. I mean, that was way better than whining and sniveling and confronting them. I just stacked a whole well, bunch again, of papers. Well, again, that's not, you weren't a victim. You, you flipped, you flipped it. And then what are they going to say? That's the best part. Oh my God, the papers, I, it's like cheating off someone and they get it wrong and then you blame them for it. <laughs> the papers I stole off you were the wrong ones. <laughs> Yeah, it probably just stopped real quick after Stop that. Stop real quick. That's awesome. What a great strategy. But talk about being resourceful and like not getting underneath it and just getting out in front of it. Yeah, well, and then quite frankly, it, it also amused me. I mean, really, once you've it's been... It's very sporting a little bit for sure. Yeah. I mean, once you've, um, once you've been a critical care nurse and seen all the tragedies and everything of that, you know, someone... Giving you know, giving me a sidelong look or stealing my papers—that's nothing. Yeah, it's it's not even it's not even a thing. Register. It's amazing how you can just normalize anything. So you're at Xerox for six years, and I know you've had your current or uh, uh, in your been your current scope probably in a lot of different ways for the last thirty years. Mm-hmm. So you went literally right from that to doing doing your own thing, quote unquote. Yes, and it's interesting when I read my wrote my first book, I wanted it to dedicate it to Val McElroy. Who oh, yeah, changed back. my did, life? Did you talk? Did you ever connect with her afterwards? Well, I phoned. Yeah, let's circle back. She's the hero. She's one of the the pinnacle <laughs> heroes of our story here. So I phoned the Toronto Yacht Club and says, "Do you have a member named Val McElroy?" And they said, "What if we do?" <laughs> of course, being do- yes. And I said, "Well, uh, I've written a book, and I want to, I want to acknowledge her for that." So here's my number. Have her call me if she's a member. So she yes. she phoned if, me. If if yes, <laughs> she phoned me. She. Honest to God, did not even remember me. She barely remembered the accident, yet she changed my life. It's so interesting the impact people can have and where, how, they, how you materialize them in your own mind mm-hmm. versus for them, it was a passing moment. Uh, and I, it was I've a passing always, comment. It was like, yeah, it, was, it didn't not, register. It was just a fleeting. 
And it's funny because inspiration, I always say that, you know, I go to different speakers and talks and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. But if you can find any, like finding a source of inspiration can come from anywhere. Yeah. And it's amazing the impact you can have. Yeah. Interesting. So you did dedicate the book to her? I dedicated the book And did you guys go out and reconnect? She was still just like, I don't even, sorry, I don't even remember who you are. <laughs> so it's funny enough, I did recognize her when I got to the bar. We were going. Well, she sounds quite stunning and quite yeah, imp- yeah. stunning as a, as a, as a yeah. yes, as a, as a lady uh, yeah. with the pronouncing purse and the whole thing. That's fine. Oh, well, that's, that's a crazy. I didn't know how you ended up at Xerox with the story, what that transition was. Just, I know the emerge and then yeah. And, you know, I think you shared with me years ago that like, Hey, it's just whatever it is, no one's going to die. So yeah. we don't have to, that, 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 uh, perception of that filter of like whatever moment you're in and you think it's this big life and death thing and you're like, really? It's not. It's okay. Yeah. We can move forward. So you decided to start your own business. How did you end up from, cause you're in Toronto still with Xerox. How'd you end up in Calgary? Um, I ended up in Calgary because it's always about a boy, right? I wondered, I wondered. Okay, it's always about a boy. So I ended up in Calgary because I was at uh, Highs in Toronto. Okay. uh, Having dinner with a politician, actually. And uh, this politician kept trying to get me to have some wine. And I said, said, no, thank you, I don't want a wine. And then the waiter brought it to me anyway. And I said to the waiter, at Alice Fashion, you eat this? You drink this, you throw it out, or you give it to someone else, but you must take this away from me instantly or you will be sorry. <laughs> I bet he believed you too. Believe me. But there was my uh, ex-husband, now ex-husband. Yes, your, your future, ex, your future, future ex-husband, ex-husband yes. was sitting there and so we ended up having dinner together because the guy I was with uh, had to go. And, and he I, saw this, and you hadn't met him at that point? That was the first moment you guys interacted? That was the first time I met him. And he witnessed this, he witnessed essentially, this. Flawed, an Alice mm-hmm. moment. As you said, Alice fashion. It's your Alice fashion. A power moment. Yeah. And uh, so, Interesting. He, so then uh, I moved to Calgary, and I have a son. Oh, congratulations. How old's your son? My son is 30-something. 30 okay. 33, 34. I'm curious. Does your son work in, is he an engineer? Does he work in medical, <laughs> or is he in sales? <laughs> My son... I brought him up to be a contrarian. Every day he went for school, I would say, have a good day, take lots of chances, and question authority. Nice. And he is the most conservative kid you could come across. (laughs) Isn't that always the way, that juxtaposition? That's super funny. Mm. Yeah. That's awesome. And uh, is he still in Calgary? He's still in Calgary, and we still talk almost every day. Sometimes I'm like, really? (laughs) That's okay. Well, again, some moms would be sitting there going, I wish they called once in a while. So I guess you got to take the balance of the, yeah, of, yeah. The, of the two. Yeah. So, and, and but, but I give him good advice. He got a speeding ticket on the way from Holes because he works in Olds. Okay. And, and uh, I've been paying his insurance because he's been a student all this time. Okay. And, I, and so he's, we've been talking about him paying his own insurance. I said, but you need to get that insurance over to you before you pay the ticket. Yes, before it ends up on there. On your record. Ah, okay, so... There's always, you always got to go to mom. Oh, I, I, go to I, mom. I, I talked to my dad on the phone this morning. We had a good chat and he had some good wisdom. It was actually a good chat. We talked about it once a week. But So how's the business for you evolved over, like obviously you, you started 30 years ago. It was probably had a certain way of approaching things. I'm, I'm assuming it's revised and kind of refreshed and reinvented itself multiple times. Yeah, that's a really good question because when I started, I was simply doing sales training. Okay. I would just walk in but and do a sales training go and then as i got deeper into the trenches with my clients i realized that oftentimes their strategy mm. they didn't have a strategy and they had processes and uh attitudes that didn't serve them and i found but poor performers are kept an average of 18 months longer if they're enthusiastic <laughs> 
with right? no correlation to performance. I think that's right. a really good exemplifier. Yeah, and so <laughs> then slowly I began to evolve into helping my clients uh, transition the salespeople they had into elite performers. And that's way easier than people think because if people have a, have a desire to learn and grow and perform – and then you give them efficiencies. Give them tools. Mm-hmm. Give them tools. For instance, the people I work with never, ever make a sales call and say, how are you today? Uh, their phone message no longer says, oh, hi, this is Alice Wheaton, and I'm on the phone or away from my desk, duh. And if you leave a message and your, your name and your phone number, I mean, really, we've been leaving voice messages for 30 years. Why do people still give instructions? <laughs> Hundred percent. I can't. I'm. I'm feeling self conscious about what I have to go check my phone messages right now. To feel ridiculous. I did, I did sales training for Spartan <laughs> for Spartan Controls years ago, and I was talking about that. The it was break, uh, and the CEO stood up and says, "Everybody, go change your voicemail immediately." And last week, I was doing training for another engineering firm, and he says, "Wow, Spartan Controls have got their phones." And I said, "Yes, I know." And as they should. <laughs> and, they, and so they went and changed their phone because they realized that when you say. This is Alice Wheaton. My personal goal is to return your call in four hours. That means that you've published your accountability. Mm-hmm. Put it out there. Stand out from the crowd. You've published your accountability. And so, to, you know, it, ta- it takes very little to up level your performance, very little to up level performance and get amazing results. No, it's not a 20 or 30 or 10x, or it's none of those things we talk about. No. It's literally almost one, it's the one degree thing. Yeah, just a, a little bit better. And I advocate You're totally 1% right. a week. 1% oh, okay. change yeah. a week. At the end of the year, you've changed about 65% of the time, assuming compound interest, of course. Of course, of course, that everything builds. And once you, because once you also get the feedback cycle, yeah. you get some feedback on something, you're like, oh, because yeah. we all are still little kids. Right. That little proverbial pat on the head of like, oh, that, that worked better than it, it did better. before. I'm going to do more of that. Yeah. And I'm a big believer. Once you've seen a better way, there's no reason to hold on. Right. Right. Whatever, however it served you, <laughs> like we joked earlier, it served your younger self. Mm, you, yeah. can let it, you can let it go. Or you think it served your younger self. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the, the misnomer, yeah. We, we create, I think you, you know, touched on the stories we create. It's yeah. quite powerful. We're, we're, expert, we're experts at it. Yeah. As I was, I joke, you can argue with facts, but be very careful when you argue with beliefs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they so, tend to bite back. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I, I like to, uh, I like to challenge people and ask us, so is this a belief and opinion or a fact? That's awesome because then you, it just forces you to filter it yourself and even put, give yeah. your own, because you don't even realize sometimes the stuff we all spout off and we do, blah, 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 big sweeping statements. And you're like, as soon as you put that filter on it, I'm like, whoa, okay, well, shit, I guess I better be more responsible for what I'm putting out there. I see you've got a letter from Tech Canada. I do. I've spoken across country many times with Tech. You're the reason I joined Tech. Am I the reason you joined Tech? Yes, you introduced me. I, we were out, we were at a Starbucks somewhere, and you said, Tyler, you know what, I, have you heard of tech? And I said, no, Alice, I haven't. And I said, I'm interested. And you introduced me to Mac Barassa. Mac Barassa, yes. And I joined tech three or four. And I was in tech for six years. Because of your, it's so good you brought that up. That was a, a pinnacle moment for me professionally to engage in that group, feel like I was kind of outside my, I, I was joking, I was outside my pay grade. For the first yeah, six yeah. months, I was like, I don't have any right to be here. With great like guys from uh, Barry Brad from Projects Engineering, Stephen Smith from Strike Energy, uh, Greg Lefevre from Excel Homes. Like I'm way outside my pay grade, and I and got Excel there because Excel Homes is a client of mine. That's fascinating. Oh, so right. you, do, you know? Do you know Lance Flora then? I really well. I bought two homes. 
Lance rental is, properties from Lance because when Greg, uh, he retired, Lance took over. Yeah. So I became good, really good friends with Lance and his wife Judy. They're fantastic. And so I was in a tech group with Lance for about three years. Wow. And I joined tech because of you, hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. And man, was I outside. I remember, I think I was in there for about a year and they asked me to do a speaking event. They had an all tech event here in town, which is rare for them. They kind of, you're, yeah, you're, you're a little more space. isolated here. They bring everybody in and I basically went up there and talked. I did a 10 minute talk on, which was also uncomfortable about how, how I felt those first six months. And it was amazing how many people came up to me after they're like, Oh my God, like I felt the same way. Yeah. You feel like an imposter. It felt uncomfortable every time, but the reward I got from basically leaning in on that shitty experience or that feeling of inadequacy, it paid off like, I, I can't even explain. So thank you very much for referring oh, me to tech. welcome. Like probably eight yeah, or my, 10 my years My pleasure ago. and you're welcome. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, so I've glad you brought that, that up. That's great. I've learned now, well, it was just last week I was coaching a tech chair in, uh, in Saskatoon. So um, I've wrote, I now know when I wake up in the morning with a knot of unease in my gut, it's not fear, it's change. Oh, that's interesting. It's good to clarify. So isn't it fear of change? No, it's just okay. it's just my higher self or whatever that is knows that there's something coming down the pipe. Okay. And it's change. And so how I meet that change will determine whether it's a positive change or a negative change. Right, but it's just exemplified as change. Just a change. Right. So, you know... It's a nice um, way to take it out of like, oh, it's fear of change. It's like, no, change is real. Let's yeah. address it. But yeah. don't always put it into change equals fear. So it's just change. That means I, there's more, the, my life is expecting more of me now. As oh, I like that. I like that one a lot. And how, and how you respond. Yeah. Hmm. So talk to me about some of your books, because I don't think all your books are about sales. So I think this is a good segue in. I know I've got two books sitting on, on the desk right now. How the top 10% do it. Is that your, how, how is, uh, What's the order? Is this one of your most recent books? That's the most recent book. And I wrote that book because there's so many misconceptions in the marketplace. One of them, and I, this is a hill I'm dying on, is relationship selling. Okay. Because no customer woke up today and said, I'm down a friend or two and I hope a salesperson calls me. <laughs> Never. Never. And what I know is that relationship sellers tend to be more on rapport. Yep, 100%. And in building rapport, they talk four minutes out of five. And in doing that, the client behind the desk is thinking, shut the bleep up, get the bleep out of my office. But they can't say that. So they say, oh, that's interesting. Can you put it in writing? And then the poor salesperson has got a punishment proposal. Mm, I think I've written a few punishment proposals before. And they fling it over the fence, meaning they send it via email. So my protocol that I teach salespeople do, and the elite salespeople get it right away. The, and this is one of the ways I know if a sales per, average salesperson I'm working with is going to be elite, is they get this one thing right away. When a client says to me, Alice, can you put it in writing? I say, absolutely. So I have a system, right? Of course you do. <laughs> absolutely. Here's my system for writing proposals. I'll share that with you. If it doesn't fit for you, we can still shake hands and part as friends. You good with that, Tyler? Yeah. I am. I'm okay. Yes, yes, I am. So how I do my proposals is that uh, I actually have them loaded in an email and three o'clock on Friday, if that's good for you, we'll be on the phone and as soon as you're on the phone, I'm going to press send and you'll see my email, my proposal. What we'll do is we'll go through that proposal, you know, paragraph by paragraph. And then if something comes up in your mind that needs to be changed or something in my mind then we'll add that to it. So let's consider this proposal first draft. When I've then made all the amendments you and I agree on, 
I'm happy to send, turn it into a PDF and send it to you. Does that work for you? It does. Yes, it that sounds great. Thank you. I appreciate it. If the that. person is not nodding their head, it's a punishment proposal. If the salesperson is not willing to put themselves on the line and be uh, assertive about mm -hmm. what they want and need, then they're not being an elite. They're not high status. They're being one of the laggards. And in every, in, in every industry, but sales especially, only 5% are elite. Interesting. That's more of a number. Okay. Yeah. The next 15% I, I call as top performers. And then the other 80% are massive middle. Most CEOs I work with get sick and tired of the laggards. Right. And I have a process. But without a system, you just tend to just be grumbling then. Without a system, you you don't know how to change it, then you're just kind of bitching. Right. Really. And so when I'm interviewing for a client and, a, and I ask, as this always happens, what's your sales process? Nine times out of ten, the salesperson will say, relationship selling. So I go to the wall with a flip chart, and I have three concentric circles, and I have A, B, and C. And I say, fantastic. I'm anxious to know what your metrics are for C relationship. Yeah, how do you measure it? And what's your metrics for a B relationship and an A relationship? And they have no idea. Because I just know it's inherent. It's my it's gut. Me, it's, it's my, my personality. Gut. Yeah, but when It's they, just who I am as a person. But when they don't get the deal, and I say, so I thought you were a relationship seller. It's all because the price wasn't right. Right. And when I was, when they'll, blame the, they'll blame the price strategy. Yeah. I remember Duncan Bureau. Um, he used to be CEO of WestJet. He's now CEO of uh, uh, Air Canada Rouge. Um, I, I was going through this process when WestJet was going from being um, booking just through uh, travel agents right. to people phoning them themselves, and then they started to proactively go after the business market. Um, uh, you know, Duncan Bureau just, he was like, yep, I get it, I get it, I get it. And then he would say, phone me and say, oh, I think this guy's wonderful. I'm going to hire him. Duncan, uh, I don't think you should. Uh, two days later, yeah, I agree with you. We're freeing up his future earlier than later. Yes, yeah, freeing up his future. I like that one. I learned that in tech, actually. <laughs> freeing him up for future somewhere else. So yeah. We can be much more successful. So, so without specific measurable processes and systems, Salespeople, it's a miracle if they succeed. Is there, do you find, well, I guess I, I'm going to answer my own question maybe with, with such with 5% considered elite and then 20, 15% getting top performers. Does sales also attract? Because that requires a level of structure and analytical behavior because, you know, there's the whole social, structural, conceptual. I know a lot of salespeople that I've encountered that are very social and very conceptual, but when it comes down to the details, they struggle. It almost like they almost resent it, they almost push back against it. Yeah, they, they don't. They, don't, they can't correlate strategy and tactics together. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And then end up just, it becomes a loose theory. And they floundering. It's a loose theory. Yeah. Which is also frustrating yes. to be on that side too versus being in something where you're actually getting results. And yeah. again, it all really depends on what profile. So who's the personality, like if you were going to do a personality type or your definition of it, who's that ideal salesperson? Like what's that profile? Analytical driver. <clears throat> okay, as we talked about earlier. Yeah. Someone that is quick. Someone is a quick thinker, uh, analytical driver. But here's a, a problem, is that a lot of people cannot... In fact, I'm doing a, a public workshop in Toronto next month, and one of my questions in the, in the brochure for it is, if you have elite performers on your team, can you tolerate them? Because most... Oh, that's a really... That's, oh, I love that. 
Well, think of it like this, Tyler. You're in a team of seven or eight people. You're the top performer. And, and the other six or seven people go to the boss on a rotating basis complaining about you. Yep. The boss begins to believe the numbers. Like, well, everyone says so. So Tyler has to go. And how you lose a high performer. We'll use Hallway time. And so you lose a high performer. One of my other books is called uh, how, to a keep, how to Attract and Keep Your Big Game Hunters and Closers. These are your street fighters, I I right? Yeah, I remember when you wrote that. Yes, I remember that one. But, and so what happens is that most, most CEOs or sales leaders don't know how to manage that asset. Right. I like the term asset. He's like, I've read a lot of, I have a lot of friends in the military and read a lot about books and like special forces and they, all, and they talk about them that way. Like we, yeah. what, what assets do we have in market? Who do we bring together? Can these assets now work as a team or are they solo operators and kind of that mm-hmm. mindset, but all very high performing individuals, yeah. but they always refer to them as assets. Uh-huh. <laughs> I find that interesting. <laughs> so they, 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 they begin to see them like as, like they begin to see their liabilities. See them as a terrorist as, in, in their organization. As the real asset. Mm. And the over the elite or top performer salesperson as the troublemakers, and we, because they question authority. Yes, they everything that you raise your son to do. Everything, yeah, <laughs> yeah mm. sometimes I'm because my son is an amazing negotiator. Because you know the answers, and the other thing I would say is the answer is always no if you don't ask. Right. Yes, <laughs> that's awesome. The power of asking. So many interesting lessons. But when you start working with a company, and I think you said earlier, like I'm going into teaching sales training versus I'm going in to actually look at their culture, look at the way they operate, look at the way they think. Because usually it comes down to beliefs sooner or later. It what do you believe down, to be true? Yeah, yeah, it comes down to beliefs. And it also comes down to, I mean, they're busy. They want things easy, right? But yes, we do. We want to push the easy button, quote unquote. And so it's like, oh God, I got this top performer, but he likes such much work. It's more work than that five of the others combined. But then again, he's probably gets more results. <laughs> but he's more work. And it's like I worked with an oil field drilling company here, and they had a guy named Ross who came from the rig for 26 years. He was out in an oil field service suit. And they hired me to do training. He came in, he slapped down his binder and says, if I don't get good information in an hour, I'm gone. Except he said, I'm fucking, I'm effing out of here. Okay, yeah, got it. Got That's it. okay. We can, you'll have to this edit is an, this This one. is an adult <laughs> podcast. It's okay. I don't think there's any children listening. I'll, I'll put an 18 restriction on this one for you. <laughs> and so um, he began to sell more than all of the others combined. And every one of them went and complained. Of course they did. Because your success is a reflection of my shortcomings. Right. And so they had a leadership convention in Banff, and they disinvited him. Oh, wow. So what he did is he went and joined the competition. Of course, of course, I, I, I feel like could have, I, yeah, I I'm like, so he went across the street. Stole all their business. Yeah, with a big, with a big, with a big FU. That's not just leaving. I'm taking, and I'm saying FU, and I'm going to prove it to you yeah. after that. And I had said to the C, I had said to the VP, you can't do this. All you have to do is slap him on the back where there's people around and say, God, Ross, you're doing a great job. Couldn't do it without you. That's all you have to do. His comment to me was, hell will freeze over first. Oh, wow. So, so, so much animosity and tension. And- but he was bringing in 
all the business. So question, was it, and maybe we're getting way into the weeds on this one, but because there is a time when, you know, and I, there was a tech speaker that talked about you have your stars, you have your rats, you have your terrorists. And often the terrorist is a high performer, but the damage they do to the culture isn't worth it. So I, is there a trade-off in that kind of conversation where someone is, yeah, oh my God, you're bringing in leads, but oh my God, you're destroying the culture. Because sometimes people are assholes too. Like just to be, just to be, since we're being candid about things. Yeah, but I, I don't, don't, what are your thoughts? I think I've never seen a, a elite or a top performer destroy culture. Okay. Okay. I, I have seen the laggards yes. destroy culture and set out to destroy the top performer because what is he doing or she doing? They're demonstrating yeah. that, that your that excuses are invalid. All of you are yeah. not doing your job. Yeah. And whatever story you have, the price isn't right. Well, Ross can sell. So I don't know. Price seems right for his clients. So exactly. what's the problem here? But then, but then to have the leadership team kind of buy into that story, that's kind of, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. And you know, I've, you know, as a tech speaker, I've often said, would you keep your top performer if everybody came and complained about them? And they all said no. And then I said, but how many people have complained about you? I mean, when you Ooh, were... When silence you, falls over the room. <laughs> when you were becoming the exalted one in your company... And you had to leave in order to survive. Same thing. Same and continued the march forward often into a different yeah. an organization that was more open to that level yeah. of performance or that level of oftentimes size of personality that goes with that kind of success right. or, or shows up that way. And I, That's I, interesting. I coach the CEOs I work with with the top performers. Look, if you're going to have a strategy session in Banff or wherever for, I don't know, five days, invite your top performer, not the rest. Invite your top performer for the last day. Make them feel included. Make them feel included. Uh, say, hey, Ross, come on in. I got something I want to slide by you. So involve your top performer in some of the leadership and executive processes. And and there you have it. They stop being renegades. Right. Mavericks. And become complicit in your own organizational culture. Well, become part of it. Because if you don't feel like you're part of something, that means you're yeah. on the outside. If I'm on the outside, well, then I'm going to start being a little bit... Un, un, it's so interesting. Do you have a culture that can handle a high performer? That's a really yeah. nice spin on it. Versus the other way, you know, the, the best thing you can do for high performers is hire other high performers because you can get frustrated if people around you aren't pulling their weight. But to look at it overall and kind of ask yourself that as an organization, that's a good moment. It's a good like self-reflection yeah. as a company. Hmm. So tell me about the... You, you had a workshop in Toronto. You said it's open to the public. Yes. I've already been thinking of a handful of people I'm going to say. Anyway, so let's do a little plug. What is the, what's the workshop? The workshop is called how, you know, how to, how to uh, Attract and Keep Your Big Game Hunters and Clothes. Oh, okay. So that is the, that is the workshop. Yeah, so it correl- the correlates to the book. Yeah. Hmm, excellent. And, where, and wh- when is it? Let's, get, let's, get, let's, uh, do, a, let's do a shameless either, plug. Shameless plug. <laughs> June 20th. Okay. And uh, yeah, so if anyone wants to reach out to me about that, they can. How would someone, what's the best way? Is it Alice Wheaton? I know you're Alice on LinkedIn. Alice at alicewheaton.com. Yep, check out your website. Go. What if someone wants, interested in some of your books? What I've got here is How the Top Percent Do It, which uh, thank you for bringing in. I am going to read this. I am going to read, read this book because uh, some of the things you said today I do, some of the things I could do better. So I'm, I'm already running my own filter here, self-analysis. Well, it's the 50 key competencies. Okay. And they're scattered to the book. There's 10 absolute musts. And then I have a profiling system. Okay. So that... Well, 30 years, you, you've seen it good, yeah. bad, and indifferent. Well, you see, when a doctor graduates, he has an MD. When a lawyer graduates, it's an LLB. When a marketing person graduates, it's an MBA. What the heck does a training does a salesperson have? And arguably, you made the comment back about engineers. It's like they're involved everywhere. An engineer, PA. But, and what about salespeople? Yeah. 
Like there's nothing much that happened with somebody not creating a transaction somewhere to move to get that light or the water or the, everything you lined off earlier. And the, the success of every company depends on selling, yet those poor buggers out there, they, they just fly by the seat of their pants. And it's been going on like that for so, for for so, so long. long. So when because I, to your point, it's not as measurable. It's, it's, it's more intangible. It's more so how do you build a course around it and a degree around it? But you can. You can. I do it with my clients. We go through the, the competencies like, is this one valuable to you? Oh, my God, yes. Is this one valuable? Oh, better than the rest. Is this one competent? Okay, which ones can we, do you want me to slash away in the training program? None. No, because they're all, you see the value of all None. Them. None. Keep them. Right? That's interesting. And so, then we measure before we begin the training, and then we measure uh, af- a month after. Well, you're bringing the a scientific, a scientific yeah. method to it. Like again, well, that's back- the engineer. That's, of course, the engineer slash the yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? No, and it's interesting myself. And you know, my, my first career, I was a pilot, and everything was process. Yeah. So I come into yeah. marketing, which sometimes process can be a little like not, not necessarily marketing, but the creative side of marketing. Well, how do you get there? I don't know. And this just happens. I'm like, let's build a process. Let's replicate it. So if something doesn't work out, we at least know that you, you can't change course if you didn't know what course you were on in the first place. <laughs> See, I think that sales and marketing is a perfect marriage. But what happens is mm. that most people see sales as the ugly cousin. That's what they do. I got into this business. It's funny. I meet so many people and they'd have sales and marketing on their business card. But they were sales guys trying to level up a little bit by throwing the word marketing in there. I'm like, let's clarify. They're together, but they are very different. Yeah. <laughs> and sales, you're right. It gets relegated to the kind of Herb Tarlick uh, used car salesperson yeah. kind of image. And customer service. My client in, in Winnipeg, uh, Catarath, and they're soaring. They're just doing so well. And and um, 65 years, they're now a global company. And uh, we, in working with their customer service people, we developed three three questions, just three that kept customers coming back forever. No lost customers. That fit into the culture. It aligned with the goals. You knew what the customers value, and you built. Because arguably today, and we talk about this all the time. In our old world, it used no. to be you did a marketing campaign, and then that was it. It had nothing to do with it's goals. Okay. What did, it have, what did it have to do with? <laughs> it had nothing to do with goals. or It had to do, why did you choose us? Mm-hmm. Why do you stay with us? Why would you leave? We asked that every three months of every single customer. Okay, so kind of like net, the, your own version of like that net promoter approach. Well, what, why did you choose to work with us? Yeah, because, and what because, insights because. Can... Why do you stay? Because, because, because. Why would you leave? Because, because, because. Okay, we'll fix that part. Done. Any questions? And we'll, no, ask, and we'll ask you again in three months. No deserters. Mm, Because there's no reason to desert. And with those three questions, when now we know, we get a 90-day notice. That something's wrong and you have a chance to fix it. Uh Uh-huh. How valuable Mm. is that to a client? Well, arguably it's a make or break. Yes, a make or break. That's their life, right? So, but to your point, that's not a, that, that created a 10x kind of outcome probably, yeah. but it's, it's a one degree of effort. It's a one degree of effort. <laughs> it's so little to make that happen. But it's so the mindset of asking that and that going out and, and taking the time. And so often we sit in boardrooms and talk about what we think our customers think, but we don't call them and ask them. <laughs> it seems so silly sometimes. We try, we try to be all knowing without just picking up the phone or, I, or whatever means you use, but just give them a call. I, believe I worked with a client recently um, that was going to do a whole bunch of marketing. And I said, well, shouldn't, shouldn't we call all of your past clients and a few of your current clients and certainly potential clients and ask these three questions? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if they... If they did. They didn't. Because you also have the will. Have to, you have to have the will, right? Yes. Absolutely. I can't impose will on a client. I can influence. Yeah, you can have the capabilities, but you still have to have the commitment. You still, you still have, have to, have to do it. 
Alice, I feel you and I can go all day because I yeah. think there's, I'm now personally, I'm getting invested. Okay, tell me more about sales and the perfect salesperson. And so we might have a part two to this, but I really want to thank you for coming in today. It's been my pleasure. It was an absolutely inspiring story. And I think for anybody who's, who's in sales or getting into sales or someone who wants to strike out on their own, there's so many reasons for people to kind of look to you for what you've accomplished. I want to give you a huge high five on that. So it was great. It was great reconnecting again. And uh, I look forward to crossing paths in the future. It has sooner. So, than yes, later. absolutely. I'm not going to wait a couple of years next time. Sooner than later. And um, happy selling, everyone. Yes, awesome. Thank you. Alice, have a wonderful day. Okay, thanks. Bye bye.